Welcome to the I Am Woman Project. I am your host, Catherine Plano. I am a creative soul adventurer, a modern day alchemist, and on a mission to empower the conscious people of this world, those who seek to learn, grow, understand, and become the very best version of themselves that they can be. Every week, we have thought leaders, change instigators, and inspirational human beings from around the globe that offer you profound teachings and recent discoveries from the world of neuroscience, positive, cognitive, and spiritual psychology to help you build wealth, health, love, and achieve lasting transformation. So join us here every week for new lessons on how to lead a life that matters, how to escalate your life after failure, and how to inject more meaning connection and resilience into your life and your business. As a way to thank our guests for their time, energy and wisdom, we would love to demonstrate our appreciation, gratitude and admiration. We would love to hear from you as to what was your key takeout from today's session by writing a review in Apple Podcast with our guest's name and insight. And when you do, Please make sure to take a photo and send your photo to support at katherineplano.com.au and you will receive a one-hour life coaching session for free, valued $500, to help you change your life for the better or to help you get unstuck if you are currently going through a transition or if you need a little motivation. Thank you. Well, this week, as always, we have a super, super amazing guest for you. We have the beautiful Meryl Arnett. Meryl is a mama, meditation teacher, the creator of the Mindful Minute podcast and the head of meditation for Shoreline Meditation app. Her meditation classes have been featured on CNN, Headline News, Today.com and Atlanta Magazine. And her podcast has been named a top 10 meditation podcast. Meryl has been teaching a corporate, private and group meditation classes since 2010 and co-created Sacred Chill, the first meditation and yoga studio in Atlanta offering regular and independent meditation classes. Meryl continues to study, practice and find great inspiration from her teachers where she finds delight combining the magical and the mundane using art, literature and dream interpretations alongside the endless laundry, dishes and bills of real life to inspire and inform her teachings. Her classes are mash up of creative inspirations, ancient teachings and her own experiences on the meditation cushion and her goal as a teacher is to use meditation practices to infuse our real everyday lives with the magic of an awakened heart. It's now time to tune into this one very inspirational human being. Enjoy. today I have another amazing guest for you. We have the beautiful Meryl Arnott. Welcome to I Am Woman Project. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's going to be so much fun. As as I was um, having a conversation with Meryl before we jumped on the show, is I don't think we've had anyone that focuses on 
meditation only um, like yourself. So it's going to be interesting where this conversation goes. So the way that we love to start the show is we always love to ask our woman of inspiration to share her unique story. So Meryl, tell us, what inspired you to do what you do today? Hmm. You know, um, a long, long time ago, <laughs> I signed up for a yoga and Pilates boot camp as I was getting married. And I thought this would be a great way to get in shape for the wedding. And so I signed up for this boot camp. It was four mornings a week, 6am. I had done Pilates before and I had never done yoga before. And I show up and I unroll my yoga mat and I take this first yoga class and about 10 minutes in clear as day, I hear a voice that says, you're going to teach yoga one day. And that had never happened to me before. And I knew without a shadow of a doubt that was true. And so I sort of jumped in with both feet in terms of taking a lot of yoga classes and studying and finding a teacher. And it, about three years later, I did take a yoga teacher training and I sort of loosely understood that yoga was a practice that was preparing us to meditate. And yet I did this whole 200 hour teacher training and never once did I meditate and never once did we talk about meditation. And then I was this yoga teacher and people assumed that I meditated and I got questions about meditation and I thought, God, I, I have to figure this out. I, I should meditate. And I feel like I should say I am a type A planner, achiever, doer, thinker type person. So I felt like meditation was something that would be beneficial in my life. And I signed up for a five-day meditation training. And I sat for five days for like eight hours a day. And at the end of that training, I had no idea what meditation was or how to do it. I had sat for five days, eight hours a day, consumed with my own thoughts and convinced that I was meditating wrong, that I couldn't meditate. And I just felt like being, I guess, I guess the person that I am in the world, I was like, I'm not willing to accept that there. I have to be able to figure this out. And so again, I sort of dove in with both feet and I studied with countless teachers. I went to two different Buddhist monasteries here in the city I live in and all sorts of trainings. And it truthfully took me a couple years until I found Tara Brock, who was the first teacher that ever spoke about meditation in a way that made sense to my brain. And when it finally made sense to me, I knew that I was supposed to then go out and try to help other people make sense of meditation because what I realized was we can all do it. It doesn't matter if you're a thinker or a worrier or a daydreamer or a sleeper. It doesn't matter. We like all have the capacity to have our own deep experiences. And so since that time, this is now 11 ish years, I have worked, I've endeavored to teach meditation in a way that feels accessible. 
I love that and it's bubbled uh, a few things up for me. First of all is I love Tara Brock. I love the way that she uh, merges Buddhism and neuroscience together when she talks about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I love that because um, I'm, I'm, I love both. I, I too uh, spent many, many years in um, uh, different uh, meditation uh, uh, caps and meditation and so forth so I do love that so one specific type of meditation because there is so much out there right there's so much out there with meditation what specific types of meditation do you do or teach yeah you know I love that you asked me this question Catherine I'm in the middle of leading a meditation teacher training so I'm in the middle of teaching other people how to become meditation teachers And as I was crafting this training, I realized that really who I am in the world is a weaver uh, in an archetypal sense. So I noticed that what I tend to do is pull threads that resonate as truth for me and I bring them together from disparate pieces. And so I started my path as a mindfulness meditation teacher. And I will say that that's always my foundation. For me, that is a practice that really, truly works and felt the most accessible. However, I also spend a lot of time studying under um, a teacher from the Sri Vidya lineage, which is like the Himalayan tradition, Tantra, um, and Tara Brach, who's a Buddhist teacher. Um, and so I have pulled these threads and the words are different in each of these lines, but the truth, the teachings beneath them are the same. And so I sort of weave them together and I pull teachings from Buddhism, from Sri Vidya, from mindfulness, and I blend it so that you're getting an experience that works with your brain and my brain and your life experiences and my life experiences. And we can all be in the practice together with our disparate pieces. Mm, I love the way you, you, uh, um, say pull threads that resonate with me, because I think that's like, and I think that's with anybody, right. And for our listeners as well, when we go out there and start, um, experimenting with whatever that may be with different teachers different masters different gurus I think it's then it's you you have experienced all of them and then you can almost create one like you said it's doing a little bit like pulling threads from each one to make your own one very unique to what you do is that correct I think that's exactly correct you know and I don't think it's reinventing the wheel I don't feel like I'm making up something that's never been taught before, but I feel like I am noticing the pieces that, wow, I really noticed in mindfulness, for example, that I resonate with the definition that to meditate is to be present without judgment and with compassion. I love that definition. That feels solid in my body and in my practice and in my lived experiences. And then that definition doesn't exist in those words in a tantric meditation practice, but I've had the same real deep practices that come from teachings from ancient texts like the Yoga Sutra. And in that text, there are very clear teachings that in different words talk about presence, 
non-judgment and compassion. And so for me, I'm like, okay, this is showing up not in one, but in two lineages. There, there has to be some depth to that, some truth. So those are the pieces that I'm going to focus on when I teach. Mm. So when you meditate, because I know for me, I've been meditating for a long, long time. I'm talking about, you know, maybe over 25 years. And I know for myself, when I first started, and I hear this all the time, I thought meditation was something outside of myself. So I always mm. seeked external of, you know, you know, reaching that, um, that uh, the aha moment that everyone experiences, right? And it wasn't till I let go of it all uh, mm. and then just went within and sat with it. Now, that in itself was interesting because I then had to sit with my thoughts. So as you're saying that, you, you know, to meditate is to be present with no judgment, how does one do that? Because I know that I became very judgmental towards my thought and then what's, what sort of thoughts that I was doing and then I don't know how to meditate. So what's your trick? Yeah, I had the same experience. Exactly. You know, we have this belief that meditation is to quiet our mind or to silence the thoughts in some way, shape or form. And then we sit down and meditate. And of course that doesn't happen because our brains think that's what they do. We have countless thoughts. It seems even worse when we're still in silent and we feel like we can't meditate. But the truth of the matter is, you know, the mind has so many levels of awareness when it thinks. So the mind is able to think a thought, I'm hungry, and I'm thinking about that hunger. What am I going to do with it? What am I going to eat? The mind also has the ability to realize I'm thinking about being hungry. So I can think the thought itself and I can see that my mind is thinking. And then if you want to take a step even further back, the mind can also realize my mind is thinking and that's not the whole of me. My mind does not make up all of who Meryl is or who Catherine is. And so I think this practice of being present without judgment is saying, I'm going to sit right here, right now. I'm going to feel whatever I'm feeling. I'm going to think whatever I'm thinking and rather than get all caught up in how I feel about the way that I'm doing or the, what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, I'm going to see if I can just sit back enough that I can watch this unfold. It's almost like taking your hands off the wheel, you know, and it's such an interesting practice because there's some effort involved. I have to show up. I have to sit here and I have to stay, but then I have to let go completely. I have to let go of every attempt to control the situation in any way and rather just allow it to unfold as it does. And the moment we do that, it is, I mean, at least in my experience, I will say it really does feel like an epiphany, like, oh my gosh. I can sit here and be terribly uncomfortable, right? I might be rehashing an argument I had with somebody earlier and I'm all worked up about it and I'm still mad and I'm, I want to go say all these things. And there's a piece of me that's able to just watch that experience unfold, watch those feelings rise and fall and not have to get up and do anything. It's a tremendous gift. 
Mm, as you were saying that, I got a picture of um, once, um, and I can't remember. I think it was um, Ama or Amachi who once said that when you're in a state of meditation, um, if the mind goes wandering, let it wander. And you can use a visualization like you're lying down beside a riverbank and let those thoughts and all, all of those emotions beside you, just, just let them flow through. Don't try to stop them. Don't try to control it. Like you were saying, like you can't control the mind in the way to stop thinking because that's what it does. But by allowing it and using that, this river analogy, you're allowing it to flow through and you can be the observer of it without even entertaining the thought itself. Then there's also a piece around mantras. What are your thoughts about mantras as a way to create that sense of focus and stillness? I love mantras. I think that's great. So in any practice, you want to have some form of an anchor, an anchor to the present moment, because that's not where our mind is used to staying, right? Our mind is designed to scan forward into the future, looking for threats. And as soon as it finds a potential threat, it runs back into the past, looking for any similar scenario. So it can, it can compare it and decide, should I do the same thing? Should I do something different? What do I need to do to stay safe? And so our mind is just ping-ponging future, past, future, past, future, past. It almost never stops here. So when we begin a meditation practice, we need an anchor, something to teach us how to stay here. And most of the time that anchor is taught as the breath. That's why you hear so many meditations about pay attention to the breath, feel your breath, notice your breath, because the breath is always here. You can't breathe in the future moment, can't breathe in the past. You just breathe here. And so we can use that as an anchor and the breath is pretty ephemeral, right? I mean, it's a hard thing to concentrate on. And so perhaps we'll use a different anchor, a mantra, a silent repetition of a word or a phrase is a beautiful way to steady the mind right here, right now. And you notice immediately when you run off into the future or the past, because you stop saying the mantra. And so you notice it and you come back and you start repeating again. So I think anchors, I, I don't necessarily have a preference. I tend to teach the breath because that's always been my practice. But any anchor that helps you stay in this moment is a valuable one. And what kind of breath technique do you actually use to stay in the present moment? Yeah. So I, as I said, I sort of came up in the mindfulness tradition and in that tradition, there's no controlling the breath. It's really, truly, can you feel yourself breathe? So as I'm inhaling in, I always sort of imagine like I just climbed inside my breath and sat down and I'm going to feel my breath all the way around my body and all the way through my body. What is the inhale? I feel it. The exhale, I feel it, an expansion, a contraction. And I just try to stay inside that feeling of breath. And there are, especially in tantric practices, there are very specific guided breath work practices that we can do. But for me, in the way that I teach, I almost always teach with the natural breath because I, I want anybody to be able to meditate. You don't have to know any magical practice. You know how to breathe. You can do this. 
Mm, and Meryl, I have to say, you have got such a hypnotic voice and a very <laughs> much a radio voice. So no wonder you'd be an amazing uh, meditation teacher to take somebody through a guided meditation. I feel so relaxed. Oh, thank you. Thank you. What a nice thing to say. <laughs> so the other thing I guess that um, I'm curious about is you were saying before that our brain looks for threat, right? And it will go mm-hmm. into the past to find how we've dealt or if we have dealt with a a certain stress that is similar to what is present. Is that correct? Yes, And so what about in these interesting times, right, uh, which we've never experienced in our whole entire life, how does that work? So the brain's going to the past but it can't find any relevant information because we've never experienced this. So how do we all... Um, deal with some of the threats that some of us are, are facing or um, are afraid of or things that mm-hmm. are bubbling up for us? How do we uh, cope with that kind of stress? Well, the general response, the I'm scared, something is happening that is unknown and I have no basis of comparison The pretty standard response is your body is going to go into some level of fight, flight, or freeze. Your nervous system is going to get triggered as this is scary and you need to protect yourself. And when that happens, immediately our sort of our nervous system, our subconscious will choose one of these three mechanisms. And as I go through them, you'll know immediately which one you do. Fight is fight. Like it's actual a fight. So my county won't impose a mask mandate and I want to go scream at the people in charge so that they do this. I'm furious and filled with rage. I'm writing the letters. I'm calling people. I'm going to the door to yell, you know, I'm, I'm fighting. Some of us are going to run away and that could be literal as in, I'm going to pack my bags and go to a country that I think is handling this better. I'm going to go hide in the mountains or at the beach. I cannot be here. Or it can be a more metaphorical running away. It can be the running away of, um, I'm going to not pay attention. I'm not going to watch the news at all. I'm only going to watch my favorite movie on Netflix. I'm totally avoiding the truth of the moment. I'm going to obsessively online shop or drink too much or eat too much, or maybe have a substance abuse, right? There's a lot of ways that we can run away from the moment and we can freeze and freeze tends to be, I'm going to climb in bed and pull the covers over my head. I can't get up. I cannot engage. And all of those are not only normal responses, but They're responses that we don't consciously choose. It's not like you say to yourself, I'm scared, so I'm going to go drink too much. I'm scared. I'm going to go pick a fight with my partner because it's the only thing I feel I have control to do. We don't do that consciously, but subconsciously that is our brain and our nervous system grasping for some sort of control in an uncontrollable moment. And conversely, what a meditation practice invites us to do is to create enough space to consciously choose our response. So I 
always think of the quote from Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was a Holocaust survivor, a psychotherapist. He wrote Man's Search for Meaning. And in it, he wrote, between stimulus and response, there is a pause. And in that pause lies your freedom and your power. And to me, there is no better definition of meditation than that. Between stimulus and response, there is a pause. There's a pandemic happening. And normally I would respond by X. But my practice gives me enough space to just pause, to notice that I'm feeling rage or fear or nothing or all of it at once. And now I can consciously choose my next step. That's a huge shift in how we engage with fear. It sure is. I could relate. I mean, it's interesting. As you were describing fight, flight and freeze, I could say that I can see uh, many people around me choose different ones. And I love mm-hmm. the way that it is It is very much depending on. It's, it's not a conscious thing. It's really interesting. We were talking about this, um, about free will. And, mm. you know, does free will exist? And then we had this big conversation. It was it turned into a bit of a debate um, because, yes, you know, I think that if we are in a conscious uh, place, which is I know it's not very often, and if we're talking about conscious, we might use, depends on the research, right, 2 to 5% of our conscious brain, the remainder is subconscious and unconscious. So are we just being, as you were saying, reactive or responding to our environment and the events? And that is depending on our patterns and our programs that we carry to this day. So everyone, there is no no wrong or right way, but everyone is going to react or respond differently. Um, So I do love that. I love the fact that you are right, that between that stimulus and the response, there is a space between those two. And it's a matter of slowing down enough to go and even challenge your thinking, right? Is this even my thought? Is this even my fear? To then that's be more conscious, right. yeah. To to be more conscious, and I think there's that's the that's the missing thing for all of us uh, at this point. I feel like we're yeah. just very much, and I, I know this is a, a natural habitual. We make decisions from the subconscious and unconscious mind, um, but it, it's about us. We, we're slowing down now, and so it's it's almost like. We're slowing down and we have – it's not like – I remember the kind of the buzz thing that we used to talk about on the show. It was like busyness is a new stupid, right? Because everyone was always <laughs> talking about, oh, I'm busy and I'm busy this. and but, but now it's the opposite, right? Yes, we can be busy in other ways, but there's this slowing down that's taken place, right, with lockdowns and whatever that may be. So there's almost like a calling to go within. And that's why I was saying to you uh, before we got on the show – this is like really, and I talk about meditation all the time. It's really, really important to go within, to stay in your center and not get pulled out by external events. So what, yes. do you, what would be a, a recommendation for people to, let, let's say, you know, because I hear that, oh, hey, I don't have time. I don't mm. have time to meditate. What would you say to those people as a way to uh, stay in their center if they don't have those their time? Because there's that quick fix thing. Like I, I just want to, I want you to fix it. And what can you do about it? Mm-hmm. What would you say to these people? You know, the first thing I want to say is this, because there's a, I think there's a huge misconception around meditation, which is, it's so easy to say, like, meditate, you're going to feel better. Meditate and 
help. We want to go within. We want to, we want to get still and listen and glean all of which is true. But if you have never done that and we're in the middle of multiple pandemics and maybe the most stressed out we've ever been in our lives and you sit down and get still and quiet for the first time, I'm willing to bet good money. It is not going to be a peaceful, comfortable experience for you. It was not for me when I started. It's And Catherine, you said the same thing, right? It's incredibly uncomfortable when you go within in the beginning. And so I think when we show up to a meditation practice with this imagination that it's going to be peaceful, I'm going to feel better when the bell rings in 10 minutes, at least in the beginning, I think that's a bit of a misconception. And I think there's a freedom that comes when you say, you know what? Sometimes it's a little bit uncomfortable because I'm not here as a meditation teacher to make you feel better. I'm here to help you feel. And that means whatever it is you're feeling. So if you are scared right now and you sit down to meditate, eventually you have to feel that fear. And if you're angry, you have to feel the anger. And if you're happy, you're going to feel the happiness. But ultimately the practice of meditation is creating enough internal strength or enough internal res- uh, resilience to let us feel whatever it is we're feeling and know that we'll be okay while we feel it. So it's not a short term, it's not a short term fix, but in the long term, the freedom we gain when we're no longer hijacked by our emotions, oh, that's scary, I can't feel that. Oh, I'm getting mad, I can't feel that right now. Or I'm gonna fly off the handle and not control it. Instead of all of that hijacking every moment of our day, we get to walk around knowing that I, I'm okay. Whatever comes up, I'm going to be able to hold it and be okay. And I think that is where, at least when I introduce people to meditation, that's where I want to start from is I get it. It might not feel good in the beginning, but in the long run, the emotional resilience you're building is so valuable. It is worth this initial discomfort. I love the way you said, I'm not here to make you feel good. I'm here to make you feel. That is so spot on because you do. It's sometimes when you're sitting with your own thoughts and your own feelings, and I think that that's why most, uh, I know for me anyway, most of us probably kept ourselves feeling or kept ourselves busy so we didn't really have Mm -hmm. to deal with what we needed to really deal with. And, and, you know, like you were saying, you know, dealing with, with those emotions. And I know for me, it helped me, if anything, uh, reduce, reduce those negative emotions because I was able to give them a voice. I gave them space. Mm-hmm. I became more aware of my emotions and feelings. And I think, if anything, I was able to manage my own stress levels by allowing them to bubble up rather than push them down and push them down and being like a, you know, pressure cooker and then... I was yes. able to manage my emotions and be more um, uh, tolerant towards what I was experiencing. And I guess on that too, what are the benefits for meditation? Because I know there's lots of like not just mental, emotional, but there's also physical benefits for meditation. There are. There, you know, I mean, the benefits are numerous and they're doing more and more studies every day. So there's sort of always new information evolving around how it impacts 
our blood pressure and our resting heart rate and our blood flow even. I mean, it's so incredible. And to me, some of the most interesting science truly is around neuroplasticity. It's around our ability to really change the automatic pathways that our thinking takes. For me, that's so fascinating and so hopeful. You know, we create these little habitual ruts every time my mother says this, I respond this way. Every time I'm running late for something, I respond in this way. These are my habits over a lifetime. And our brains can change those habits so that it doesn't even go that route anymore. It takes a totally different route because we have built the capacity to do that. So there's some tremendous benefits from the science side. I will say in my own life, the benefit that I have noticed the most is my own ability to be comfortable with discomfort, which is really what we were just talking about. But that's such a fascinating gift to witness in your life. You know, and I use the example of I'm running late for something. I react in that, in this way. And that for as long as I can remember has been a reaction for me. I hate being late for things. And the moment I'm late, you know, I'm stuck in traffic and I know I'm going to be late for that meeting. I can feel the intense reaction rising up and my body temperature rises. I feel flushed and like a little clammy. My gut clenches, my heart is racing and I'm mad. I want to yell at the drivers. If there's somebody in the car with me, you know, Lord help them. (laughs) And I noticed This was, I mean, this was early on in my meditation practice. I wasn't teaching yet. I had, I was probably, I mean, I'm going to guess it was even within the first year of my meditation practice. And my youngest sister at the time was just graduating from college. We were going to her graduation and we lived like two miles from where the graduation ceremony was taking place. And I had thought, well, that's only going to take us, I don't know, we'll leave 20 minutes early and we'll make it in plenty of time. Not taking into account that thousands of people were graduating from this university on this day and time at this specific location. And so naturally my partner and I are sitting in bumper to bumper traffic that is going nowhere. And I'm watching these minutes tick by and I feel it. I feel that reaction start in the base of my belly and it's rising up. My gut clenches, my body temperature rises. I feel flushed. My heart is racing and I can feel in my throat that I am about to turn to my left, look at my partner in the driver's seat and start a fight. And somewhere in my brain comes the thought, I do not want to be this person at my sister's graduation. I don't want to show up mad. And rather than turn to the left and start that fight, I sat right there. I pressed my feet down into the floorboard. I can feel it like it was yesterday. I took deep breaths until I could calm down. And I sat there because there was nothing I could do about the traffic. There was nothing I could do to get there faster. And we got there when we got there. We get through the graduation. And afterwards, my family was said, they're like, whoa, that was different. We thought you were going to come in like a tornado. And that was the first moment that I said, oh, this practice is working. And it wasn't conscious. It wasn't a, I did this in my meditation practice. Now I'm going to do it in real life. 
it was that change in my brain. Something had shifted. And to me, that ability to say, this is uncomfortable, but I can be with it. I'm okay. I can be comfortable with discomfort. Mm, I love that. I think it's also, you know, you were talking about neuroplasticity and I think that once, you know, you know, neurons that fire together, wire together. So obviously mm-hmm. over time what you're doing is kind of paving a new pathway for your brain and thus now when instead of reacting like you probably would have done in the past because of this neuroplasticity that's changed in your brain that you are becoming more conscious and more, probably even more aware of like, that if you were to yell at your partner right now, it's not going to make any difference to the time it's going to take to get to your graduation. Mm, exactly. Mm. Exactly right. So how would you, for, for neuroplasticity, in a simple way, how would you describe it to our listeners for them to understand? I know I just talked about neurons that fire together, uh, wire together, but what exactly mm-hmm. does that do? I know that this is like... It's very, I guess it would be very similar to what you were talking about with every stimulus, there's a response. It's about that space, being in that space and choosing a different response. Is that how you would describe it? Yeah. So, you know, I think one of the metaphors that's used quite a bit is imagining a dirt road that has been driven over hundreds of thousands of times. And each time you drive down that road, you're creating like a little rut in the dirt road, Right. And it's going to be much easier for the tires of your car to settle into that rut and travel the path of thousands of other drives down this road. And this is our habitual thinking. Every time I get an email from my boss with this word in it, I assume my boss is mad and I respond in this way. Or every time my partner does X, I respond in this way, right? And we have these ruts in the dirt road in our brain. I go from point A to point B before I can even take a breath. And the practice is saying, even though it's difficult, can you steer your car out of those ruts onto a new path? And each time you choose that new path, well, now you're making a different set of ruts in the road. And this is neuroplasticity because I'm essentially paving over that old road and steering down a different road. And it, that's going to become so habitual that point A to point B happens before I can even take a breath, but I'm going where I want to go. I made the conscious choice to go there instead of being hijacked by whatever happened to me when I was two that formed this pathway for me. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And that's how you're, you're actually, by choosing a different way or a different route, you're actually... Um, it's, I call it a pattern interrupt almost like, you know, mm-hmm. you're reprogramming your brain to That's go in exactly a different it. direction. And, you know, I just want to say we're, cause we're talking about big concepts and I don't know that that has to be a conscious goal for you when you sit to meditate. I mean, truth be told nine times out of 10, I go sit outside in the grass And I sit and I feel my breath for 10 minutes and then I get up and I go on my day and I'm not consciously saying, I want to change this habit. I want to feel a different way or be a different way in the world. I'm doing this 2,500 year old practice that hundreds of thousands of people have done before me. And we know 
through experience and now through modern science and research, we know what the effects will be. The changes happen because we do the practice, but not because we sit there and say to ourselves, I am changing the way my neurons fire. We don't have to do that much work. No, that's true. Absolutely. And I guess that kind of links into the different types of meditations because I, I am aware that you do one, it's awakened heart meditation. Um, and I've been getting into the HeartMath Institute when they talk about the heart coherence because quite often mm. I talk about, you know, um, in this day and time, this 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 time or interesting days that whatever you want to call them, um, that it's really important for us to drop into our heart as often as we can and stay out of our head because I think that sometimes people, you know, like you were talking about the ping pong theory, they have these mm-hmm. fears that ping pong from one uh, side of the head to the other or narratives, whatever that may be. So how how um, what is a, a method about you know? that one could do about dropping into the heart and, and really help expand the heart space? Oh, I love this question. This, this has been my own personal work in meditation. Um, and I think it's so, so valuable because so many of us learn from such an early age to live from the neck up. We are our thoughts. We are the quality of our mind and our feelings don't matter. Our heart doesn't matter. And the practice of dropping down into our hearts, I call it an awakened heart, right? Of finding that awakened heart to me simply means this is a softened heart that is often visited. I soften and I check in. And that practice is so different from what we normally do, especially in a moment like this, when we, when our fears are heightened, our anxiety is heightened, when everything feels so intense, so worrisome, I think for most of us, our habit is to harden the heart. I can't feel all this. I can't handle multiple pandemics and humanitarian crises all at once while worrying about my children, my partner, and my job. I can't do that. And so I'm going to just put a little steel cage in my body, harden everything up, and just get through this moment the best I can get through. And we, I think we've learned that that's supposed to be the way that helps us. But the truth is all we're doing is bottling all of that up and letting it hide in the nooks and crannies of our bodies and reside in the subconscious of our mind so that it is constantly and quietly plaguing us. And when we say an awakened heart or dropping into the heart or visiting the heart, what I mean is can we take the time to to soften some of that armor? So it might even be as simple as imagining when you sit down that the heart itself could relax. Like what would that feel like if your heart itself just in this moment was safe enough to relax? And when I breathe, can I imagine there's a sense of warmth coming in and out of my heart? And then when something comes up, a bubble of laughter, a cry, a feeling or a memory or a story, instead of squashing that down or trying to make it something different, what if I just saw it or I just laughed or I just cried for a minute and I kept breathing some warmth in and I kept reminding myself, just soften, just soften, just soften. 
what we realize is it's not necessarily lovely or easy, but I can, I can be here amidst multiple pandemics and multiple humanitarian crisis crises and fears for myself and my family and my loved ones and my community. And I can feel all of that and keep going. I, it doesn't mean I'm going to have an answer. It doesn't mean I'm going to suddenly know the next right thing to do, but I can feel it. I can be awake to it. And there's a freedom in saying, as we talked about earlier, let me feel it now consciously so that it doesn't subconsciously plague me all of my waking moments. Mm, I'm back now. <laughs> I think I went, did you soften your heart oh my gosh I was I was being guided by what you're saying I'm, I'm like I am so at ease is probably the best way to describe how I'm feeling right now it's so beautiful and you know I, th I think I love that even like the what you were talking about getting comfortable with being uncomfortable even that going into your heart especially if you've had um uh, many broken hearts I always look at it it's the meaning we give that to we could say that all of this hurt because I, I I wrote a blog a, a, quite a while ago and I talked about how we can look at it as that it cracked our heart open to a different love mm -hmm. so you mm. can you could actually as you were talking about and I was actually getting going into my heart and actually feeling my heart sometimes that in itself people don't want to sit with you know, whether it's to do with self-love or whether it's to do with a broken heart. But that's the only way that we could re really mend our heart is to be in our heart and sit with our heart and embrace our heart. And, you know, one of the ways that I began doing this work in my own practice in truth was simply sitting outside in nature, which maybe sounds totally unrelated and yet somehow it is deeply related to our own hearts. And I, there's a trail by my house, like a little wooded trail, not far from my house. And it goes along a Creek and a couple, maybe two miles in, I'm guessing there's a rock that juts out over the Creek and it's like just the right size to lay down on. And I, to this day, I do this practice several times a week. I walk out there and I go lay on this rock and I stare at the sky and I feel my breath. And there is something about letting yourself be held up by the earth that allows you to tap into your heart space, I think, in a way that feels a little less scary than sitting cross-legged in a beautiful space with the candles and the incense and there's all this pressure around you to have the deep experience. Just go lay on the earth. Just feel the wind, feel the earth hold you up, feel your breath, and you will drop into your heart. I have zero doubt you will drop into your heart. Mm, and I think also too, just from different teachers that I've um, encountered over my time, is that sometimes meditation doesn't mean that you have to sit there with your cross legs and, and doing the om to actually experience yes. meditation, right? It can be as simple as being in nature and it can be even as simple as walking and and as you're walking through, you know, like there's a, a walking type meditation where you sit in your heart 
and be one mm-hmm. with your environment. So, and this is nature, of course. And it kind of like, it helps like you have this waves of emotion when you just focus on your heart and step out of your mind as you're walking through nature, barefoot even. Just take your shoes off and just feel the yes. earth. It doesn't have to be... Um, and you can lie down too, like you said. You know, some people say you can't lie down to meditate, and I think it's a, it's a it's a choice. I think it's what it feels right for you and what resonates for you. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with you completely. I think the caveat is, I encourage you not to fall asleep, because meditation is ultimately a practice of waking up. And so, if you know I'm going to fall asleep if I lay down, then I would try not to lay down. If you're laying down because the world is heavy right now and you need to be held up by something other than yourself for a minute, lay down, let your practice be the luxury of your day because really ultimately it is, you know, this is the 10 to 20 minutes that you're carving out to do nothing else, but be by yourself, feel your breath and feel your heart. I mean, that is ultimately a decadent practice. And so for me, meditate on your couch, meditate laying down, meditate outside, inside. Where do you sit that you feel comfortable and safe? And is it quiet enough that you can have your own experience with yourself? That's it. Doesn't matter where. Oh, I love that. I love that. And I do, I am curious because I've noticed on your website, Meryl, that you have cards. Do you use tools before you step into a meditation or what, what, what are those cards? Oh. <laughs> so I, they're Oracle cards. Um, and I use many different decks and I love them. I do not use them before practice. I use them after if you use them before, then you spend your whole practice, like contemplating the card you drew, but I have cards with animals on them. I have cards with different archetypes on them. I have cards with sacred geometry on them. And so I'll pull whatever deck feels like it's calling my name that day. And I do my meditation practice and then I will shuffle a deck or lay a deck out on the ground and I draw a card, whatever card I feel like drawing. And that's my message for the day. It almost always is a powerful message. And it's, to me, it's nothing more than drawing something out of my subconscious that I want to pay attention to. So if it's an animal, there'll be some sort of wisdom attached to that animal. You know, uh, a honeybee is the quest for sweetness, for example. And then I might reflect for a few minutes on what is sweet, what is sweetness to me? What's sweet in my life right now? What am I paying attention to or not? And, you know, today the card that I drew was a archetype and it was the threshold and it was, you know, we all, we all cross thresholds moving from one place into another. And sometimes we choose to step across that threshold and sometimes something pushes us, but either way we have to move through it. We have to move across it. And I thought, man, aren't we in a moment of crossing a threshold right now? Who knows what's on the other side of this? So it's it's so valuable to reflect on and resonate. So for me, I mean, that's not something I teach, but for me in my own personal practice, I find it joyful and insightful. I love using any type of Oracle card. 
Mm, I love that. And it's almost like not setting intention for the day, but definitely a point of focus. Absolutely. I Absolutely. Love that. And I do believe we're going through a threshold. Absolutely. Like we're, we're um, in Australia and, of course, we're on, in our sixth lockdown and I've uh, been speaking oh. to different family members. And I said, just think of it this way. It's like when you give birth, it's probably one of the most painful things you experience, right? Because it's, it's, we're, we're all carrying through different types of pain, right? Whether it's, mm-hmm. you know, um, a, a, a physical, mental, emotional pain, right? Or spiritual pain, whatever that may be. But once you go through that birth at the end of it, the, the reward, right, is that this, you've got this beautiful child. And so I feel like there's going to be massive changes that will be taking place. Mm. And of course, I study astrology. So we talk about breaking down old systems and um, uh, new ways of working. Already, you know, people are now working from home, investing more time with themselves, their family. Uh, you, you know, there's all these different things. And then there's the flip side of that as well without, you know, uh, going too deep into that. But it is definitely a time that we're all going through a threshold, whatever that threshold is for that individual. So I love that. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. So, Mir, I'm curious, in your moments of meditation, pulling out the cards, is anything? Has you have you ever had a, a really big epiphany or an aha moment that really um, changed your ways of living, like a radical <laughs> shift that you can think of? Yeah, I just had one really recently, actually. So let's see how to recap this whole experience. Hmm. I, I knew I had to have a difficult conversation and I had to ask for something rather than have it offered to me, which would have been my preference. And I was really, truly tied up in knots over this. Like, Oh God, I, I don't, what am I going to say? How's it going to go? I'm all worked up about it. And I had a whole conversation with my therapist about it. And my therapist says, you know, I just want you to notice that we've had a lot of sessions around difficult conversations. This is, this, this is something that comes up for you. You have a hard time when you have to say something that you think is going to be difficult or not taken well or something like that. And I'm like, yeah, that, okay. Thank you for that, that insight. Thank you. And I go and I do my meditation practice and I'm reflecting on just like, what does it mean to speak? And where am I holding back from that? Why do I feel uncomfortable with this? I do this practice. I did it outside actually. And I'm laying on the very rock I told you about earlier. And as I'm laying there, I'm remembering that this particular path is actually, now it's a dirt trail, but it used to be a road hundreds of years ago to an old textile mill. And outside of this old textile mill was a settlement for Eastern European Jews. This was in the 1800s. And those are my ancestors. Eastern European Jews are my ancestors. And I'm lying on this rock and I'm remembering that this settlement used to be in this land. And I think, I bet my ancestors laid on this rock. Like this rock is meant for laying on. There's no way you would walk by this rock and not lay down on it. And I bet my ancestors laid here. 
And I bet some of them had this exact same worry. And I just had, it was, it was almost a daydream. It was so light. It wasn't a light bulb going off. It was just this almost nonsensical thought that went through my mind, but I remembered it. I journaled it and I went home. And then that night I'm sleeping and I have a dream. You know, you have those dreams that are so vivid and so real, you know that you're supposed to remember it. Mm -hmm. And in this dream, I am standing in a circle of women and we're surrounding a a body of water that has dolphins in it. And I have brought with me three tools to help us help the dolphins. And the woman standing next to me in the dream turns to me and says, but you forgot the tool that helps us talk with dolphins. And like a lightning bolt goes through my body and I think, oh my God, I forgot I can talk to dolphins. I forgot I can talk to dolphins. And I woke up full body experience. Like I, I suddenly knew I could talk to dolphins metaphorically, of course, but I, I had this knowing that I could talk. And so the next day I wake up, I sit down my meditation practice. I thank the dolphins. I thank the ancestors. I get on zoom. I have this conversation I'm able to say exactly what I want to say, exactly how I want to say it with zero angst. And the gravy of the story is it was received beautifully. (laughs) And it was a lovely conversation that we were able to move forward from. And since that time, I, I have, I cannot stop thinking about that moment. And I actively feel different in my day around my ability to say what needs to be said. Something shifted because of that practice, because of that new level of awareness, something shifted and it's changed the way that I engage in conversation. Well, it's almost like the rock was also a metaphor in itself because the rock is, it's also about grounding, right? It's been solid Mm. and um, almost like a, a form of composure that you can say what you need to say without the, the, I guess, the emotions of the water almost. Uh, yeah, I think that's beautiful. Mm. You know, and this, the rock has been here forever. It's seen countless worries and problems and angst, and it's still here, right? It's, it's still here. It pervades. Mm, that's beautiful absolutely beautiful and I think as well too it's when we dream if we can sit with our dreams and sort of um, decode some of the messages that we receive and once again we don't do that enough because we're not conscious right we wake up out of bed boom and you might have your dream kind of like drop back in during the day just for a, a snippet of a second but we don't give it enough time to go oh I wonder what my unconscious mind is trying to tell me here I wonder what what, the, what were the messages that were bubbling up over um, overnight. Um, so I love the way that you explain that whole story, and you are an amazing storyteller, by the way. Oh, thank you. Mm. I am a huge proponent of dream journaling. I consider it part of my meditation practice. Actually, go dream journal. It's so valuable. 
unbelievably mm. so. And so do you, is, is your method is as soon as you wake up, you write on your journal first thing in the morning? Because I was having this conversation with a friend yesterday. I journal in the mornings. That's what I do. And she's mm-hmm. like, I journal at night. And I'm like, okay, I think it, it's, once again, it's, it's what uh, sits right with you. But what's your trick? Yeah. Do you wake up and then journal straight away? Yeah. So I have two journals. I have one that stays on my nightstand that is only for my dreams. And the minute I wake up, I grab it. I often just take it into the bathroom. I do my pee. I write in my journal because I don't want to forget it. And I, you know, I have little kids and anybody who has little kids, you know, like you don't get to wake up leisurely and journal your dreams. Your kids like come kick the door in and jerk you out of your sleep. So it's a real practice to say, stop for a second. What was I just dreaming? Get the thread and then grab your pen, at least get a couple sentences down enough so that you don't forget it. And then I have a separate journal that I keep where I meditate. And that's the journal. So like, cause normally what I do is I dream journal first thing in the morning. Very first thing I do get up, depending on how the day goes, my goal is get the cup of coffee, come sit downstairs, do my meditation practice. And so then I have a journal down here and then I journal after my practice. And that tends to be more of like any thoughts that I had, any feelings I want to explore, what am I working on or want to stay aware of? That's more of like my exploratory journaling. And it's interesting how often the two overlap. Mm, I think I'm going to do, I used to do that. I used to have one sitting right beside my bed, but then I get up really early. As I explained to you, I get up at 3.30, 4 o'clock most mornings. So it was always a little bit hard for me to write straight into my diary or my journal. So now I just do mm-hmm. it when um, I come and do my meditation. But I think that having the two separate is probably the best way to go about it. So thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. So Meryl, As we start wrapping up the show, we always love to ask our woman of inspiration to pick one word that best describes her personal brand. So what would be that one word for you, my dearest? Whoa, that's a very good question. Hmm. I am going to say one word to describe my brand. You know what? I'm going to say accessible because that's really my goal is I want you to know that you can do this. You can meditate. So I'm going to say accessible. Mm, I love it. Love it. Love it. And then the last question is what would be three shiny golden nuggets that you would like to give to our listeners today? And that that could be like three practical exercises for our audience. Hmm. Um, okay. So I'm going to say go sit outside. (laughs) It's the most valuable practice I've ever done in my entire life. And, and more specifically than that, when you go sit outside, let yourself connect with the elements. So connect with earth, connect with air, feel the wind against your skin, connect with water. That can be a river, it can be rain, it can be a puddle, it can be a sprinkler, connect with water and connect with fire, which can literally be a fire. It can be the sun shining on your skin, but feel those elements because those elements, the ancient texts tell us they exist inside us too. And so golden nugget, number one, go sit outside and connect with the elements. Golden nugget number two, I would say, is meditation is something we can all do regardless of the amount of chatter in our mind. 
all of us are capable of our own deep experiences. It doesn't have to be somebody that goes and sits in a cave in the Himalaya mountains for six months. It doesn't even have to be somebody who goes on retreat two or three times a year. It's you on your couch for five to 10 minutes every day. You can do it. And then the last one is that ancient meditation practitioners left us with descriptions of their experience of meditation. And in all of them, it describes a universe inside the body. And in more modern times, Carl Sagan said, we're quite literally made of star stuff. We and stars and the earth and the tree, we all have the same chemical compositions inside us. And this moment in time that we're in, which is so full of separation and divisiveness, I think one of the most powerful healing tools we have access to is this connection to ourselves and the natural world. It reminds us that we are indeed connected, even in moments when we're physically separated. I love all three and I love the way that you describe that. It's um it's just the other day, I can't I'm trying to think where I heard it, that we are all made out of stardust. Mm-hmm. I love that. And it's true. I you know, it sounds so beautiful and poetic, but it's that's science. That's actually true. How mm. magical is that? I know. It is very, very magical. But And I love that. It's, it goes, even though, you know, some people talk about the great divide, if we chunk up and go beyond that, we are one, right? We are mm -hmm. one. And, mm -hmm. and I think if we just all, you know, really, and it goes back to the heart, if we all just shine light and love wherever we go, this will remind us that we are all from love and light and thus we are not separated. Yeah. You know, Catherine, the, the ultimate goal, that's not even the right word. So I'm going to put it in air quotes. The ultimate goal of meditation, at least from the ancient perspective was enlightenment, which is to, to know your own light. That's, that's the goal of meditation is to know your own light. So as you're saying, can we shine that light and love out into the world? That's what we're doing when we meditate is we're connecting to our own light so that we can indeed do that. Mm. And I think that, you know, I've heard, and I, I think, I, I think I just got re, I re, uh, an email not that long ago with Dr. Joe Dispenza. And I know there's a lot, a lot of like group world global meditations taking place because what it does, it actually shifts the consciousness as a collective and raise the vibration of the consciousness. And they're thus uh, also raise the consciousness and the vibration of uh, Mother Gaia. So is that something that you do? Do you do these large meditations as a, as a collective? I have done that. I have taken part in meditations like that. I lead a group meditation class on Monday nights. Um, so I do get to sit in a circle with other students and practice together. And I will say that I think one of the most valuable tools in a sustainable meditation practice is meditating with others because you do indeed feel that shift in energy so significantly when you sit with other people, even virtually my class right now is virtual. I still feel that shift. I know my students do too. It's powerful to practice with others. Mm, and I mean, if you go into quantum physics, there is no distance, right? 
um, and mm-hmm. no space that it doesn't matter if you're doing it virtually just the fact that you're setting that intention and you're doing it together um, you will feel the effects of that particular meditation so Meryl where is the best place for our listeners to find you well, you can find me and all of my offerings on my website, which is merylarnett.com. You'll see that I have a podcast, which offers a free way to listen to my teachings, my practices. I put meditations on there that you can do at home. And I have an app called Shoreline, uh, which you can download. And that has got all nature-based meditations. You can tell I love nature. I love mm-hmm. being outside. And I create meditations paired with stunning soundscapes from all around the natural world so that you can do practices with thunderstorms and the desert and the howl of a wolf and whatever you need for your moment. Mm, That's beautiful. The wolf one sounds uh, quite fascinating, interesting to me. Thank you so much. Look, Meryl, we'll have all of those in the show notes. I just can't thank you enough for coming on the show, sharing your wealth of wisdom. And I hope our listeners are not driving when they're listening to this show because I am feeling (laughs) so relaxed right now. I feel like I've just gone through a massive uh, transformation through a meditation and a state of stillness um, while we have been uh, connecting and collaborating together in this conversation. So from me and from my heart, thank you so very much for coming on the show. It was such a pleasure. I so enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank you so very much for listening to today's episode. If you loved what you heard and this topic really resonated with you and you think it will help others, please share the show with your friends to help us make a difference. And if you want to be part of our mission to help empower the conscious people of this world to learn and grow, then the best way to help us achieve this goal is by giving us a good review on iTunes or please subscribe to the show. The more subscribers, the better the speakers for the show, which then means more value for you so that together we can help the world become a better place. Don't give it another thought. Hit that subscribe button and help people get their weekly lessons. And when you do, please be sure to let us know by sending us an email to collect your special gift where you have a choice from six guided meditations or an e-book to soothe your soul. Now, if you have any questions or special guests that you would like to hear from, please send us an email to support at katherineplano.com.au and we will get right back to you. You can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Catherine Plano. Until next week, please take care of yourself. Much love and gratitude. Thank you.